Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, it's Violet here. This week, we're off to one of the most glamorous places in all of history, the Palace of Versailles during the reign of Louis XIV, in the company of the great expert on French history, Philip Mansell. He tells us about his recent book, King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV, and takes us into the heart of this fascinating period to meet the fabled Sun King. If you would like to see some beautiful images of Louis and his palaces, please have a look at our website, tttpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Philip. Hello, Violet. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most extraordinary monarchs who's ever lived. I believe he is still the longest reigning monarch for whose um, dates we can be sure. Uh, And that is, of course, Louis XIV, who um, had this absolutely incredible court in France, in in Paris, and in all his palaces. But before we start to talk about him specifically, I wanted to ask you about writing a biography, because you um, are a very distinguished historian who's written many, many books um, over your career. And um, this book we're talking about is the, the biography of Louis XIV. So I just wanted to ask you, what do you think makes a good biography? And how do you approach a subject like that when you're writing about somebody's whole life? Yes. For me, what really makes a good biography is multiplicity of points of view so the reader can make up their mind. It's not just one author hammering home his or her perspective. And with Louis XIV, because it's the French court full of the cleverest and most literate people in France at the time, you have endless points of view, ladies-in-waiting, mistresses, diplomats, girlfriends, ministers. So it's really an embarras de richesse, really wonderful, first-rate observation of power and character. And of course, in those days, people did endlessly write diaries. I mean, probably most famously of all in this period, the Duc de Saint-Simon wrote extensive diaries and and letters. So there must be a huge amount of source material to sift through. How do you approach that? Yes, what I think is Versailles is a magnificent palace of stone and marble, but even more magnificent is the palace of paper that all these courtiers created around him and around events. And how I approached this, this sort of Niagara of sources is trying to find new ones, of course, for example, the papers of the Noai family who were leading courtiers, and and going for diaries and letters more than memoirs, because they're more immediate, they're less reconstructing events, or at least in theory. And I simply adored reading, say, the diary of the Marquis de Donjot, who's really quite dull, but he does, he's there, he's a friend of the king. He does note that the king's going out in the garden at midnight in December when he's over 60, but he's still so tough he can see his beloved gardens. Those little tiny details that you 
might not get in the sort of big narrative. I, I think so. And often, often a dull source is quite good because they bother to write down these, these details of daily life that the Duc de Saint-Simon is far too busy and too clever to note down himself. And so presumably you spent a lot of time, I know you've lived in Paris, but while you were re researching this book, can you give us a flavour of some of the places where you find these sources? Yes, I spent a lot of time in Paris, uh, going to the Bibliothèque Nationale, and I had a friend in the Bibliothèque Nationale who very kindly got out for me in the old building, which is in the Rue de Richelieu, which is far nicer and easier to get to than the new building far away in the southeast built by President Mitterrand. This is a building originally built by Cardinal Mazarin. And um, I saw these beautiful illuminated manuscripts done for the king, showing his triumphant progress through the Netherlands, for example, during a war. Really glorification, everything going according to plan, at least according to this account, and everything is sort of recreating a Roman triumph, really. And I went to Versailles as much as I could, to the, trying to understand the gardens, which are a whole world on their own, in addition to the palace and to newly opened parts of the palace, a, a museum of Versailles inside the palace. And I saw the orangery, which still contains the private bath in which the king and Madame de Montespan would wash themselves and have a lot of fun together. This bath is a huge, it's like a, like a sort of 17th century sauna. It's a huge bit of, of purple marble in the orangery now in the Garden of Versailles. And is it actually like a bath that you fill with it's, water? It's like an octagonal <clears throat> space, yes, which you can fill with water, yes, with steps going down. How amazing. Uh, baths weren't really just to uh, get, get clean in, it, it's to, to have fun with your girlfriend in. Yeah, well, normal people wouldn't have had baths very often, would they? No, I think there were some public <clears> baths, <throat> but no, they, they didn't. So he called himself the Sun King and there was this symbolism. He's known as the Sun King. And I was reading about the fact that when Copernicus introduced the um, heliocentric system of the universe, because obviously astrology was extremely important and the symbolism of astrology. And so kings began to take this image of themselves as the sun at the centre at the expense of the nobility, which had tradi traditionally under the sort of feudal systems, the nobility had been very important. And I wondered, can you t tell us about that, explain about that? Because I think that's a very interesting aspect of this, that, you know, there, there was a sort of philosophy behind the idea that he was the sun king. Yes, the sun never sets, the sun is perfect, the sun illuminates the whole world. In fact, it's a very old symbolism. I think some pharaohs used it, like Akhenaten, and I think some Persian and Roman emperors also, and some kings of France before the king. But really, I think it's competing with other monarchs because the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the King of Spain, who were among his ancestors, had, because they had Spanish America, they ruled the world in effect, they had a sun symbolism and they had this uh, motto, nothing beyond, nec plus ultra, there was nothing beyond the Spanish Empire. So the King of France naturally had to go one better. And Louis XIV had a motto, nec pluribus impar, not unequal to more, 
i.e. he could beat every combination of enemies and he could rule many different kingdoms. And he, he did think he was a new, a new Apollo, really the, the, the god of the arts and a new Mars and a new Jupiter. But he's not really destroying the nobility, at least in my opinion. I think he's using them, reinvigorating them. As long as they're obedient, he increases their privileges. And Versailles is so extraordinary because it's not just a royal palace, but there's, there's the central bit, but there's two huge wings, really, for the royal family and for the courtiers. So in a way, it's, it's bringing the nobles to the center of power. And he made sure that they came to court, though not all year, all the time, and that they're very well rewarded. And there's this amazing scene on his deathbed when he says to the courtiers round his bed, I'm so sorry I didn't do more for you. Although he had done a huge amount, he'd given them jobs and pensions and promotion and so on. So it is a, a symbiosis between the king and the elite, in, in fact. He, the king has to please them as they have to please him. And the sense that he, that, and this sort of plays into the whole idea of absolute monarchy and the divine right of kings. And I know that that started before he was even born because his parents had been married for many, many years and his mother hadn't been able to produce a child. She'd had several miscarriages and stillbirths. And so when she became pregnant, I, the description in your book of this reaction of the French people and the, the sort of the endless praying and the it, it, it was this really tense atmosphere that, you know, she was pregnant and it had to be a boy. that We had to get the heir. And then when he was born and he, he was known as Diodone, God given. So tell us about that, because it, it seems like from the very, very beginning, he had this aura around him of being almost godlike. Yes. And, and, and special and given by God because he comes late in his parents' marriage. And it's, it's wonderful for the French monarchy. I think it's so Catholic and so Christian because it's coming out of various crises, the Reformation, the really horrific wars of religion, which had torn France apart in the late 16th century, and the European wars of religion between Catholic alliances and Protestant alliances. So everybody's a little bit more on edge and more uh, emotional, even more emotional about religion. And his father, Louis XIII, does in fact dedicate France to the Virgin. So there are two magnificent statues in Notre Dame, the Cathedral of Paris, of both Louis XIII and Louis XIV offering their crowns to the Virgin. The Virgin is Queen of France. And Louis XIV carries this on all through his life. He goes to mass every day of his life, or at least maybe not on campaign. He's a very pious and religious monarch, and that's why he makes this tremendous blunder of revoking the Edict of Nantes and forcing, trying to force all the Protestants in France to become Catholic. And you say in your book as well that I, th I think we should talk a bit about Paris before before we go to your year because it's so important um, in terms of Louis XIV's reign and, and the history of France. And you say in your book at the beginning that Paris is one of the most religious cities 
on earth and there's so many churches and abbeys and I actually noticed the last time I was there I was on the underground um the metro and I was looking at the names of the different and so many of them are Trinity, Notre Dame, something, something. So, so many of them were obviously churches. So can you talk a little bit about that? Even now, so many metro stops are called after saints and, and Catholic symbols. It, it is extraordinary. It's forgotten now because of the revolution. It was this highly Catholic city. And indeed, in 1588 to 89, there was a religious movement called the League, which overthrew the legitimate king of France, Henri III, because he wasn't thought to be Catholic enough and installed a sort of Catholic urban democracy called the League, the Catholic League, which was in some ways more revolutionary than the early years of the French Revolution because they deposed the king. And it, it's a way of popular feeling, I think, and popular needs being expressed through very fervent processions and sermons and preachings almost like a sort of a Catholic version of a, a pop concert, really mass ritual uh, and people joining into a mass public performance of popular preachers and so on. And so the king had to be more Catholic than anybody else in order to keep in touch with this popular Catholic feeling. It's a way of ordinary people expressing their feelings and indeed their needs for bread or jobs or connection with God or connection with the state. So do you think at this point they, obviously pre the French Revolution, so that Catholicism was almost the nationality? Yes, yes. Well, that's a very good way of putting it. Yes. And that France was more Catholic than anywhere else. And France would purge, they would, pur the re revocation of the Nantes was quite popular with ordinary French people, not with everybody by any means, but with many, because it was purging the kingdom of heretics. And by the way, people would get the heretics' properties and even their clothes at cheap prices. There were sales of Protestant goods. It was passionately Catholic, as indeed England was passionately Protestant. Mm. And was the Catholic Church extremely wealthy? I mean, did did because as we've said, it, it seems that most of Paris was was owned by the Catholic Church in terms of the churches. And these and... wonderful ab abbey gardens in the middle of Paris. And then it's a way for women to have a women's space. There were so many orders of nuns and being founded practically every year in the 17th century. It's a way for women being away from men and controlling property through convents. So uh, Anne of Austria, Louis XIV's mother, had her own private world and convent, the Val de Grasse, which you can go and visit now in southern Paris. It is a, a wonderful French Baroque space church and the convent uh, buildings were turned over to a military hospital. It's very, very elegant. And yes, it was very rich and also very social because these nuns and monks would run hospitals and almshouses for the poor. So it was really the social security of its day. Yeah. Um, let's just go briefly to uh, Louis XIV's childhood um, and talk a bit more about Anne of Austria, his mother, because he was, I think, four years old when his father died. And he didn't actually, he wasn't actually crowned until he was seven. But um, his mother managed to take control of 
the reins of power and, and was also extremely involved, unusually involved in his upbringing. They were very close, weren't they? Which in those days was not normal if you were an aristocrat. Yes, they were very close. They would have every meal together, at least in, in theory. It was not normal at all. She'd had a miserable marriage with Louis XIII. He was a very difficult, complicated, unhappy man. Uh, she plotted against him with her brother, the King of Spain, M many conspiracies. One of my favourite stories is on, on the King's deathbed, Louis XIII's deathbed, her husband, she sends a message. She's not actually with him and says, oh, sire, if I knew about these conspiracies, I never knew about any plans to have you murdered. And the King's reply is, in the condition in which I am, as a Christian, I must forgive you, but I don't have to believe you. <laughs> and was that one of the last things that he said to her before he died? I think so, yes. But because her position changes when she has a son, so her, all her interests are in her son, who is going to be King of France, so the two, the husband and wife, do come closer. They have long private conversations about politics, obviously, and he gives her his advice, which I think is to have a chief minister. And she, he, he himself recommends Cardinal Mazarin to her. Mazarin is a favourite of Louis XIII before he is of Anne of Austria. And she becomes really quite a good politician, always trusting Mazarin, who is very unpopular, very corrupt. But she said, well, if I give him up, then people will never stop asking for more concessions and more concessions and more concessions. And they all, they're all aware of England and the English Civil War. They all realise the lesson of Charles I giving up his chief minister, Strafford, who is then executed by the parliamentarians. And then it's non-stop concessions, wars leading to his execution. And so the, her lesson of the English Civil War is be tough, be strong, resist calls for concessions. And of course, the English royal family were living in the court, weren't they, for quite a... Yes. Henrietta Maria, the widow of Charles I, is a daughter of Henri IV, King of France. She's Louis XIV's aunt. She has a pension. She lives in the Louvre or just outside Paris until her death in 1668 or 9, I think. And so she's very much part of life. And his cousin, Charles II, he knows very well indeed in the 1640s and 1650s. France and England, in my opinion, are sort of locked into a sort of ele electricity of antagonism and copying. But even the antagonism is a sort of link. So everyone says, oh, we mustn't look, be like England in the Civil War leading to the king's execution. And that helps keep the Fronde more moderate than it might have been otherwise. Yeah. And later on, James II, comes over and, and flees to the French court. So, as you say, these connections continue and they're all related to one another quite closely. They're all related to one another. Everybody speaks perfect French. Um, James II comes with about a thousand followers in his court alone, let alone thousands more in his guard and army. And Louis XIV receives him very well, although he knows he's a hopeless leader He'll always make a mess of things, his campaign in Ireland, like his trying to resist William III in England. 
Nevertheless, he's extremely polite. There are over 500 meetings between the two royal families between 1689 and 1715, Louis XIV's death. It's a staggering number. And in my opinion, well, he quite likes having other royals with whom he can relax as equals, but also he's playing to the gallery of French public opinion. Oh, isn't the king wonderful? He's like God. He's consoling uh, his cousin in misfortune. Isn't the king marvellous? And that's what people say. Madame de Sévigné, the great letter writer, says it. But the king's wicked sister-in-law, Madame, who's born a Protestant and says what she thinks, also says, oh, well, I think King James is the silliest man I've ever met. He should go and live in Rome where he can hear as many masses as he wants. And we're going to talk a bit more about um, Louis' military activities because he was very much a, a, a very keen on wars um, and um, being successful militarily. But before before we do that, can you tell us a bit about the cultural side of his reign? Because he uh, vastly increased the size of Versailles and redesigned it and, and made these incredible gardens that you've mentioned and also the Louvre Palace. Um, so tell us, uh, tell us a bit about that side of his personality. Yes, in my opinion, he's really practically the greatest patron of all time because he's a patron of architecture, gardening, sculpture, painting, music, opera, writing. And he's, he personally knows the creators, talks to them almost I mean, as much as a king then could talk to somebody as an equal, almost as an equal. There's an extraordinary print of him and the architect François Mansart at the uh, opening of the Invalides, this magnificent building in Paris, which everybody should go and see because it's French Baroque at its best. It's a huge hospital done for old soldiers, partly to keep them off the streets, but also to look after them. It's got about 16 courtyards, a magnificent dome church in the middle. Louis XIV founded it in 1671, then 1706, Mansart receives him and gives the king the key. And there's a print of the event where Mansart is almost as big as the king. But that's very unusual for 1706. And indeed, the king not only congratulates Mansart, but amazingly, Madame Mansart too, and says, oh, you must have a share in the responsibility for this magnificent work of art. Well, that's Louis XIV personally, because he was almost a feminist. Well, I was going to ask you that because I was so struck reading your book. There seemed to be so many women who were powerful, who were really players on the political scene. What Was it a period of slight enlightenment in that regard? Yes, it was. And I would say particularly the French court. Parliamentary England, well, no woman ever gets near a parliament till the 20th century in any country. Parliamentary England is really not a women's society. But the French court is... There were, Partly through chance, there have been so many queens of France who, because their husbands were, were, were dead, their sons were minors, they were regents or extremely powerful, like Catherine de' Medici, Marie de' Medici, Anne of Austria, and many, many others. And also there's this great literary tradition. Since the early 15th century, Christine de Pizan, who's a lady-in-waiting, writes about the equality of men and women. And this goes on, women writing. And there's an amazing book by a man 
and then really uh, pe- well-dressed people and travellers and, say, uh, English travellers, occasionally they do seem to be able to get their way into the entree, particularly if they give a little present to the valet at the door. And it's mainly grandees who are telling the king news of Europe, of battles, or hearing the king tell them news. And they're watching each other, and everybody's pushing and shoving to get near the king. And Molière gives a very funny account of all this pushing and shoving in the 1670s. And in, in the 16, there's accounts of all the, these carriages coming to the courtyard of the Louvre to be at the levee. And it's a particularly a French thing, but Charles II is beginning to introduce it, I think, based on France in England in the 1670s. And, but to go back to the culture, he's also very nice to the gardener, Le Nôtre, and tr- goes round the garden. They're both in wheelchairs by the end of their lives and talking to him again almost as an equal. And sculptors and painters, the great painter Lebrun, he says to Lebrun, Lebrun, you mustn't die in order to make your prices go up. Please don't die. That's a sort of sardonic royal humour. He knows that when artists die, the prices go up in the Paris art market. And he's giving them subjects like Alexander the Great, who appealed to Louis XIV. And he's encouraging sculptors like uh, Girardin and, and others. So he, he's, a, he's a creator. And indeed, his work of art is Versailles, its gardens, the parties at Versailles, combining plays, ballets, fireworks, meals, and so on, which are all commemorated in books of prints. And uh, I love the story about Bernini, who was summoned from Rome, the great sculptor. And, 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 you know, that from what you were just saying about you could talk back to him, which is so unusual for a monarch at that time. Yes. But, but tell us what Bernini said about Parisian architecture. Yes, uh, he says it's just a, a, like a, a, a dirty comb. He says Paris is ghastly. He really runs down Paris and France. He is the Italian genius for whom nothing is ever good enough. And the way he's summoned to Paris and the court and treated as royalty with special carriages, special amount of ice in the summer and so on, it shows what the French court was like, worshipping works of art and creativity, as it had done always, really. They'd summoned Leonardo da Vinci in the previous century and other Italians. And the king and his brother are very nice to him. And this amazing detail is that Bernini was allowed to run his fingers through the king's hair in order to rearrange it for his sculpture. But what also shows that the king didn't have total power, the king wants this great international genius at his court, but the French art establishment and Colbert and the French architects and artists and sculptors don't really like him. They want to keep the king for themselves. So in fact, they freeze him out. They say, oh, Mr. Bernini, your plans are marvellous, but actually you don't understand the French court. There has to be a larger bedroom for the king because all these entrees and livets and couches have to take place there. And you, don't ha- <laughs> you, d- you haven't made enough space for the lavatories because we must be hygienic. We don't want to have disease at court and so on. And indeed, the French accounts in diaries are rather mocking him of they're always saying, oh, io ono ha fatto una grande idea and mocking his Italianness 
And indeed, he goes back without his plan for the Louvre having been accepted. The Louvre, the east facade, which you can see today, is in fact a totally French plan with the two pairs of Corinthian columns which Louis XIV himself chose. So it's an example. It shows there is, even then, a very strong sense of nationality and a very strong sense that actually the court system and the French state and patronage system is stronger than the king himself. They keep Bernini out and they make sure the king has a French design and a French palace. Yeah, but he did make the beautiful bust of the king. And I hope, I hope we can have a picture of it on, our, on the website, on your page, because it, it, it's such an incredible sculpture and you do feel like you can touch his hair. It's magnificent. Well, I think we should go to your chosen year now, Philip. So um, if you could travel back in time to a year in history, which year would it be? Yes, I've chosen 1700. This is the apogee of Louis XIV and Versailles. I'm completely obsessed with Versailles because it is this whole system, cultural, social, artistic, creativity. There's a party every night, but also it's a hub of a political network of French power when France has 25 million people, many more than other European states. And 1700 is almost a peak of Louis XIV's power. He has expanded France by three fine provinces, Franche-Comté, Alsace, and French Flanders. And then he's about to put his grandson on the throne of Spain. So he's got 15 more years on the throne. He dies in 1715. But at, at this point, is it peace? Because uh, t tell us a little bit about all the wars, because he, he, he did spend a lot of his reign on the battlefield himself, didn't he? He loved war. And in fact, all French monarchs did. It was an insecure monarchy. There had been many assassinations, plots, civil wars and conspiracies. They had to prove themselves on the field of battle. And he had been expanding northeast. He inherited a war from his father with Spain, which gives them Roussillon and other provinces. Peace in 1659, made by Mazarin. And then 1667, there's a war against Spain, and he grabs French Flanders. 1672, there's a war against Holland, which uh, he punishes Holland for what he conceives of as insolence. And really, it's a terror war, but he, it helps him expand into Lorraine and Alsace. 1688 to 9, there's a war in the Palatinate in West Germany, Eastern France. Also a war to try and put James II back on England. Then 1697, there's peace with William III. There's this very interesting period when William III and Louis XIV are almost allies to, to divide the Spanish monarchy. Lots of English people come to Versailles, write admiring accounts of it. William III's ambassador is well received by Louis XIV and he's shown round the gardens. He sees the bulbs and the flowers and the fountains and William III loves gardens, so they have a sort of gardening correspondence and exchange and uh, will there be a French garden in, outside Windsor or Hampton Court? And of course, because William III was William of Orange, so he was Dutch. He was Dutch, which is, English, and also he had yeah. French blood. So he's Louis XIV's first cousin once removed, or maybe twice removed. 
uh, because he descends from Henrietta Maria's eldest daughter. It's once removed, really quite, yeah, yeah. quite a close relation. But by this time, they've become enemies. William III becomes king of England in order to use England against France, which he does very successfully with the army, the money and the navy. And he's, of course, Protestant. And he's Protestant against Louis XIV's horrifically persecuting Catholicism, which has led to 50,000 French Protestants fleeing to England, who are a great literate force stirring up hatred of France and Catholicism. They help found the Bank of England. OK, so this is the perfect moment to go to your first scene. Yeah. What is happening? Where are we? So we're in Versailles, which has been finished, this vast palace, the largest in Europe, full of people all day, full above all of ministers and ambassadors and couriers. And they've just brought the news to the king that his brother-in-law and cousin, the very ill and invalid Charles II, King of Spain, has died in Madrid. And who has he named as his heir, his nephew, the legitimate heir, the crown of Spain could go through women, son of his sister, the wife of Louis XIV, Marie, uh, grandson, Marie-Thérèse, the, the second grandson, the first grandson is going to become king of France, the second grandson, Philippe, Duc d'Anjou, will become king of Spain. And then the doors of Louis XIV's study open, courtiers are allowed in, and he says to them, Monsieur, I present to you the King of Spain. So everyone gasps with amazement. And the Spanish ambassador goes to, on his knees, kisses the hand of this very shy, modest 15-year-old prince and says, Oh, sire, King of Spain, I'm so happy. There are no more Pyrenees because France and Spain are going to be united. And Louis XIV makes a great speech saying, be my son, I have accepted the throne of Spain for you. It is the will of God. It is the wish of the people. So he does talk about the wish of the people, because the Spaniards want a French prince. They're fed up with the Habsburgs who had previously ruled them. And it is the will of the King of Spain. His will is named as a factor as well as heredity. Be a good Spaniard, but do not forget that you were born a Frenchman. Again, this very sharp sense of nationality. And let us hope that the peace of Europe will benefit from this and we will become friends, France and Spain. So also a sense of Europe, very strong at the time and that there should be peace. And then Philip V, eventually, as he has become, he's treated as an equal by his gr terrifying grandfather. For a month, he stays in Versailles, and then he leaves with a French entourage. He goes to Spain. He's briefly acknowledged as king, even by England, but then England, Holland, and Austria refuse to acknowledge him, and the war of the Spanish succession breaks out. And Louis XIV loses all the battles. There is this great genius, Marlborough, John Churchill, who had begun in the French army, actually, but he's a brilliant general. He trounces Louis XIV's generals. British and Dutch soldiers prove better than French soldiers, 
above all better fed and bigger men. And Louis XIV comes close to seeing a foreign army in Paris or outside Paris, 1709, 1710. But there's a miracle. French and Spanish resistance is better. Queen Anne and the English are fed up with all the bloodshed. Uh, the Habsburg candidate's brother dies, so he's going to unite Austria and Spain. And above all, a Tory government replaces a Whig government in England. Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, uh, drives Queen Anne mad with her rows and jealousies, and she is sacked at court. Tories come in and they make a secret peace with France behind their allies' backs. So really he's safe. Louis XIV has this wonderful remark, oh, there cannot be two great divisions in England. I, and he gets what he wants. There are great divisions in England and the Tories make a peace with France and that helps save Louis XIV and the Bourbons. So does Philip V, uh, does he remain king of Spain? He remains king of Spain. He fights in battle himself. He never really learns Castilian Spanish but he's quite popular. He's young, he's good-looking, he's energetic, he's the legitimate heir, he has a son, and his descendant is now Philip VI, King of Spain. He's a Spanish Bourbon, the present okay. king. And on the whole, in the 18th century, the Spanish Bourbons were a success, and they did form an alliance with the French Bourbons, as Louis XIV foretold. Long-term, it turned out how Louis XIV wanted. Yes, in fact... <clears throat> In the end, he won the War of the Spanish Succession. Why not join a trip with our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? They were recently voted as the best small company for arts and culture holidays at the British Travel Awards, and their tours take in some of the best art collections around the world and explore the stories of their creators. From the superlative collection of German Expressionist art at Leicester Museum, to the 38 Renoirs on display at the Clark Art Institute in Massachusetts. ACE Tours delve into public and private collections in the company of expert art historians and lecturers. To find out more, visit the ACE website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Yeah. Um, and so let's go now to your second scene, which is connected, I think because we're, we are still in Versailles. Tell us what's happening. Yes, well, this is one of the reviews by the king of his beloved garde du corps, his personal bodyguard of nobles, nobles on horseback, cavalry nobles who, who escort him whenever he leaves the palaces and also provide the guards in the guardroom before the royal apartments. And I just want to stress, it is a divine right monarchy there's a coronation, anointment with uh, holy oil. He's the eldest son of the church. But above all, the French monarchy is a military monarchy because there have been civil wars, there have been assassinations. He had to conquer, reconquer his kingdom town by town, province by province. Even the crowned king, many towns would refuse to open their gates to him in this civil war called the Fronde, which almost established a parliamentary and constitutional monarchy in France. Only Anne of Austria and Mazarin prevented that, really. And the king is well aware of this, 
and you can see in the courtyard of the Invalide some of his cannon and inscribed on the cannon was one of his favorite mottos ultima ratio regum the last argument of kings and that is that force cannons firepower are the real argument of kings and everywhere he went there were guards and soldiers and he's a he's not a very good general he's not very brave on the field of battle in my opinion but he's a very good uh soldier's king who personally inspects uniforms kit equipment guns uh, food supplies of his soldiers sees them he personally chooses his bodyguards there's a wonderful uh account by the english philosopher john locke of a royal review of the bodyguards in 1677 i think it is and he sees the king going up and down up and down these lines of men with his wife the queen so they're associating the whole royal family with the guard his his grandsons would have to serve in the musketeers of the guard the force from which the three musketeers came in dumas novel and the king chooses the officers himself he appoints the colonel of the garde française himself the largest regiment in paris the, and it's they who keep control of paris when there are bread riots in 1709 and uh, they didn't keep control in 1789 that is why the french revolution was successful and i think you can't understand the french monarchy without soldiers and guards and military music there every day of the year and presumably this personal guard would have accompanied him when he went into battle and when he was travelling around france yes this personal guard is with him when he's going around france everybody rather dreads them because they have to be billeted and supplied with food wherever they go how how many were there roughly there were about by the end of louis the 14th's reign there were about 10,000 in the guard alone and between 100 and 200,000 in the army often the figures are very theoretical and there's the garde du corps the bodyguard there's the prévôté who keep law and order at court there's the mousquetaire de la garde who are a mounted escort there's the gendarme de la garde there's the cheval léger de la garde and then there's these two infantry regiments of the guard 3000 each the french guards and the swiss guards because no king of france is ever going to trust his own people entirely he far prefers to trust foreigners because you pay them and they're more reliable and they, so when louis the 14th arrests fouquet his powerful minister in 1661 he only trusts the musketeers to do it under d'artagnan the great d'artagnan oh. Yeah. He doesn't trust the garde du corps because they're too connected with the power and social system of France. And they love Swiss guards. All monarchs loved having a foreign guard if they could and they're paid and there's a famous remark in a French civil war when he says where are the Swiss and the commander of the Swiss guard this is his grandfather replies no money no Swiss. He, they hadn't been paid so they'd gone away. They'd all gone home. Yes. <laughs> Earlier on we touched briefly on the empires abroad and your book is called King of the World. 
I didn't realise that Louisiana in America is called Louisiana because of Louis the 14th. And I think that our next scene is going to involve um, rather the very unhappy side of um, imperial expansion. Can you tell us where we're going and what we're going to see? Yes, well, well, we're going to see a procession of liberated slaves, of French people who had been captured by Muslim Arab pirates in the Mediterranean. And then there's a whole system of freeing them for money. And there are whole... Catholic orders, the Mercedarians and another order, whose main job was to help look after these slaves in prison in the Ottoman Empire or the, what were called the Barbary states, Algeria and Tunisia, and then raise the money to buy their freedom. And the king would do this. And so it's, it's important to realize that the slave trade, it's not just... Europeans capturing Africans. It's also Muslims capturing Europeans and Muslims capturing Africans also. And Louis XIV was involved in this. He starts the French slave trade in Africa with the Compagnie de Guinée. And the first slave ships go take slaves to the French West Indies to work in plantations, sugar and coffee. And part of the Spanish succession, an aspect of it, is everybody wants the business of supplying the Spanish colonies with African slaves, enslaved people. And there's a remark by a French ambassador in Madrid, 1700, where he says, typically in very dry French, ce commerce est très avantageux. This trade is very profitable. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about, profit. And there the were, in fact, a recent book has shown there were, there were galley slaves in Louis XIV's navy, rowing galleys, and some of them were Africans or Native Americans or, indeed, Russian slaves in some cases. And th this was horrific. And French Protestants were made into galley slaves. And Queen Anne was desperate at the end of her reign to try and liberate as many of them as possible. And Louis XIV's really didn't want to, but he did to please her because he wanted peace with England. And this is an aspect of Louis XIV's life and reign. There's this great cultural explosion. At the same time, he is cruel and brutal. There's a, a, the French slave trade. There is also his cruelty to French Protestants. Uh, he, he forbids the practice of Protestantism, even in your own house and anybody found disobeying would be often murdered, raped, imprisoned, and really horrific treatment. So they flee France illegally, crossing the Alps or crossing uh, the Pyrenees, or in fact, buying places on ships. It's like refugees in the 20th century fleeing yeah. Ru Russia or Nazi Germany. You, you can't not <coughs> think of it because the ships are searched and fumigated to try and uh, get out anybody hiding in the hold. But in fact, they did get away and they helped strengthen Louis XIV's enemies in England, Holland and Brandenburg. And he's also cruel to other, to his neighbours, bombarding Brussels, Heidelberg, Mannheim, Genoa, Algiers, many other cities, uh, totally ravaging bits of the Rhineland. 
And so this procession, it, it, would that have happened at Versailles? This procession, yes, it happens outside the chapel at Versailles. It's to show that the king has done his Christian duty. He has bought the freedom of Christian captives. So Versailles is a global hub of the slave trade, of liberating Christian slaves, of ambassadors, the king of Spain. Everybody's coming through. In fact, some Africans were educated at Versailles in Louis XIV's reign children of pro-French kings in Africa. And occasionally he would receive Native Americans from the French domains in Canada and Louisiana. And these slaves, you say they were bought back, they weren't swapped, because that happened as well, didn't it, sometimes? There was swapping, but of course the King of France didn't want to lose able Moroccan and Algerian slaves who were rowing in his galleys, so he would hide them from the Moroccan ambassador who wanted oh, yes, to... Yes, I read that. When he came to visit court, they would, he would hide them. Yes, yes. So it's very unfair and unequal. And the Sultan, um, Moulay Ishmael of uh, Morocco, because they obviously had a diplomatic relationship, and, and, and I read a quote in your book where the um, Louis Fourteenth was obviously giving him presents, and he said, actually, thanks, I just really like my, my slaves back, the, the slaves the Moroccans who you have enslaved at court. I'd rather have them than presents. There's a very noble letter. The, the, the life of one slave is more valuable to me than any presents. And he doesn't get them, or occasionally he manages to, but very grudgingly. So it, Louis XIV is on top of a slave empire as well as the Kingdom of France and his own colonial empire expanding all over the world, in India, in the Indian Ocean in Africa and in Quebec and Louisiana. He takes Louisiana to stop the English settling it. And so Versailles isn't just talking about itself. It's referring to sort of everywhere in, on the globe. And there are magnificent globes made for Louis XIV, which you can see now in the Bibliothèque Nationale. They show the whole world and him dominating it. And then he has this very close alliance with the Ottoman Empire. So the leading Catholic power is allied to the leading Muslim power. And that was a huge change from the century before, wasn't it? Because Well, well it, it had been started by a predecessor, François Ier, in, in the 1530s and 40s, really to counterbalance the Habsburgs and Austria and Spain. It's for reasons of grand strategy. But then dressed up, oh, we're doing it to protect the holy sites in Jerusalem and Nazareth. Oh, we're doing it to protect the local Catholics in the Ottoman Empire. But really, it's to counterbalance Habsburg power. And the king quite liked the fact there's a war between Austria and the Ottoman Empire, which is devastating Hungary and the Balkans. But it's keeping Austria under control so he can grab bits of the Holy Roman Empire. He really does sound like the most fascinating person. And um, I feel like we could carry on talking about him all day and not run out of um, interesting new ideas. Um, but I'm going to ask you now the final question, which is, of course, if you could have picked something up from one of these moments that we've visited today, what would it be? Yes, it would be one of the magnificent books published by the Imprimerie Royale, the Royal Printing Press, where he's engraving the pictures in the Royal Collection and the sculptures in the park of Versailles. It's showing the French royal collection and palaces and gardens as this great cultural 
force and hub, which really taught and is showing parties with fireworks. So they're magnificently engraved. So the sky is black, but the fireworks are all white. And it's, it was a, a sort of vogue of its day, uh, telling people the latest fashions at Versailles and Paris, and so inspiring generations of palaces in Germany, in England, the sort of aspects of Petworth and Chatsworth, for example, and Hampton Court, and indeed throughout Europe, how to give a party, what pictures you should buy, what sculptures you should have in your garden, how to follow the latest fashions, what the king and his court are wearing at Versailles. How to live your very best life. I mean, he still remains to this day an inspiration to the sort of super rich of the modern world, doesn't he? Well, I think what makes Versailles special is not just its size and splendour, but that it was always for entertainments and parties, fireworks, balls, ballets, comedies, concerts. And many nights, I mean, before COVID at Versailles, people were hiring the palace. It helped pay for the palace upkeep for parties, weddings, Indian weddings at Versailles, uh, operas in the magnificent opera house built later. And so there's always something going on, as there was always something going on in Louis XIV's reign. It was never boring like other courts. There's always a party or a concert. There were private concerts in the courtiers' apartments, as well as state concerts in the state apartment. And indeed, Macron uses Versailles for meetings. Putin has been to Versailles. And also for fashion shows and shows of French luxury goods, like cars or what, or perfume or clothes. Well, I bet Louis XIV is happy about that. I imagine he's looking down from heaven, if that's where he ended up. Um, and he's very pleased to see that his palace is still being used in the way that he designed it for. Thank you so much, Philip. It's been a real delight to visit Versailles with you today um, on this really miserable rainy day. Thank you for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you very much. That was me, Violet Moller, speaking to Philip Mansell the other day about his wonderful biography, King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV. It is available now in all good bookshops and would make a great Christmas present. There are images and more information on our website, tttpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe, leave us a review and recommend us to your friends. Until next time, goodbye 